We turn in this section back to Peter, the apostle with whom we began pretty much in the book of Acts. And um, at least for this session in Acts, this is the one whom we will finish with. We're going to look at verses 32 through 43 this morning. We'll read that uh, somewhat lengthy passage. And I'd like to ask Abe if you'd pray for the ministry of the word this morning. Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 32. And now it came about that as Peter was traveling through those parts, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. And there he found a certain man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years, for he was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. And immediately he arose. And all who lived at Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they, they turned to the Lord. And now in Joppa there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which translated in Greek is called Dorcas. This woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. And it came about at that time that she fell sick and died. And when they had washed her body, they laid it in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, entreating him, Do not delay to come to us. And Peter arose and went with them. And when he had come, they brought him into the upper room, and all the windows stood beside, all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. But Peter sent them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up, and calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known all over Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And it came about that he stayed many days in Joppa with a certain tanner, Simon. Let us pray. Hear thy words, understand them, apply them to our lives. I pray God that you'd be forever grateful also, Lord, for, for, for the ones who are studied and learned and dedicated their lives to the study of thy words that they can preach it to us. I'm grateful God for that. Be with us, be Lord, and help us understand that word. Amen. Amen. Thought perhaps this morning I would preach a special message to the young folks uh, from verse 34. Arise and make your bed. <laughs> Did you hear that from your moms every morning? So, No, um, this, is a, this is one of those passages that it doesn't really lend itself to expository preaching. You have the events in Peter's life and it's obvious that Luke and the Holy Spirit who inspired Luke intends for us uh, in, our, in our minds to travel with Peter. And I, I think the question we should, should ask is, is why? Uh, we have uh, a couple of miracles. Um, Aeneas, who is paralyzed, is healed. Uh, Dorcas, who, who actually dies, is raised again to life. And yet we know that uh, many miracles attended the, the ministries of the apostles. Many miracles attended the ministry of Peter especially. So I think what we have here, as I've mentioned several times, is uh, we're, we're transitioning here. We're in a bit of a cusp of the narrative. We've been introduced to Saul of Tarsus, 
who will afterwards be known to us as Paul the Apostle to the Gentiles. Um, but he's not going to come back on the scene for a couple of chapters. And we're returning to the man with whom Luke was primarily interested in the first half of the book, and that is Peter. Well, Protestants in general, and certainly Reformed Protestants in particular, uh, tend to prefer Paul. And we have, uh, we have a bit of a problem, the problem of Peter. Now, Paul is, you know, he's a theologian. Uh, he's the expositor of justification by faith and of election and of the sovereignty of God. Things that, that instill confidence in us in the gospel as it is presented to us in the scriptures, knowing that God is able to do what he has promised to do. Peter, well, he's the first pope, right? You know, what do we, what do, we do with Peter? Paul, we study. You know, Paul, we dig into his theologies and we write, we write books and books and books. I have two shelves of books on Paul. I have one book on Peter. Okay? Now, none of them are Roman Catholic, so they write more about Peter than the Protestants do. Peter is more to be explained. And generally, from a Protestant perspective, we try to explain what he was not. In other words, he was not the first pope. So, you know, that's really pretty much what you get in a Protestant exposition of the life of Peter. He wasn't the pope. I think there's more to it than that. I really do. And I think there's some pretty powerful scripture uh, with which we have to deal with when we consider the person and the problem of Peter. And so this morning, that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look uh, at least briefly at the life of Peter. Well, the problem of Peter is partially what the church made of him through its traditions in the very earliest decades and centuries of our history. But it's also part what Jesus made of him. And, and this is where we struggle. Because Jesus said things about Peter and to Peter that allowed the church to make of Peter what we no longer think Peter was or is. As Protestants, we disagree that Peter was the first bishop of Rome. We disagree that he was the first pope and head of the Christian church on earth. The Roman Catholic Encyclopedia, New Advent, has this to say, The Lord made Simon alone, excuse me while I get my reading glasses, whom he named Peter, the rock of his church. He gave him the keys of his church and instituted him shepherd of the whole flock, the office of binding and loosing which was given to Peter was also assigned to the College of Apostles united to its head. This pastoral office of Peter and the other apostles belongs to the church's very foundation and is continued by the bishops under the primacy of the Pope. Well, we don't agree with that. Have we fairly answered that claim, however? Have we dealt reasonably, honestly, with what Jesus did say to Peter? 
Have we reckoned in our own minds with the undeniable fact that among the apostles, Peter was always in the lead? Can we reasonably deny Peter a unique place among the apostles of Jesus Christ? And if, in fact, he was given a unique place, we can't evade the problem of the primacy of the Pope by denying that fact. But rather, we need to come at it with honest eyes, honest ears, and determine what was the purpose of that unique position that was given to Peter. And perhaps more importantly for us, was it the Lord's intent that that position given to Peter was to be passed down beyond him. Listen to some of the things that Jesus said to Peter. Obviously, we're very familiar with Matthew 16, where Peter makes that confession of faith, where he says to Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, and I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now, we've all heard sermons about the Petra and the Petras and the little rock and the big rock and all of that. And we've all heard the classic Protestant answer that the rock upon which the church is built is not Peter, but rather Peter's confession. That holds no water whatsoever from either the Greek or the dialogue or what Jesus says to Peter elsewhere. It cannot be denied that Jesus was speaking to Peter and saying things to him that were foundational and unique among the whole eleven at that time. Later on in the same chapter, actually the next verse, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now again, Protestants make a very accurate point that in the Gospel of John, Jesus gives those keys to the assembled disciples, and not just to Peter. However, that was after the resurrection. This is before. And so Jesus giving it to Peter before the resurrection and then giving it to the apostles afterwards might mean that because of Peter's own actions, in other words, his denial of Jesus Christ, that perhaps the Lord is demoting Peter? You know, okay, I was giving you a shot there, Peter. I gave you the keys, but you couldn't seem to get it in the lock and you locked yourself out. And therefore, I'm going to give the keys to all y'all. Okay? I'm sure he said it that way. All y'all. Okay. Problem is, Jesus knew that Peter would fall. In fact, in Matthew, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 22, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. Did you ever ask the question, why him? Why not John? Why not Nathaniel? Why... Peter, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. What's going on here? This is before the death, the burial, and the resurrection. This is before Peter's denial because he says, hey, Lord, Lord, I will never deny you. And yet it 
Satan seems to understand something's going on here. And he not only requests, he demands, because he's a pretty arrogant cuss. He demands to sift one of the disciples, Peter. And yet Jesus, knowing exactly what is going to happen, very confidently in faith, says, I have prayed for you. Therefore, once you've turned back again, because you will, because I've prayed for you, strengthen your brothers. Also, after the resurrection, we have that poignant dialogue between Peter and his risen Lord, where Jesus says to Peter, Simon, do you love me more than these? Three times, he challenges Peter, do you love me? And when Peter says, you know I do, I think I do, Lord, you know my heart. Each time, Jesus says, tend my lambs, shepherd my sheep, tend my sheep. Can we reasonably deny that Peter was given a unique position unlike the other apostles? Now that doesn't necessarily lead us to the conclusion of church tradition that became the Roman Catholic Church and the doctrine of the papacy. But we don't do ourselves any good by evading the reality of what we're reading. For some reason, Jesus singled out Peter to be the first among equals, if we want to call it that. He singled him out first to give the keys of the kingdom. He singled him out and allowed him to be sifted by Satan. But then when he had turned to strengthen his brothers, and among all of them who were to be shepherds of the flock, under shepherds of the great shepherd, he says to Peter, tend my sheep. I think we, we, we gain more by allowing the scripture to, to say what it says than we do out of, out of fear that perhaps we're becoming Catholics and we're in danger of running back to the Pope, that we might just cover over what Peter really, really was. The key, and pardon the pun, to understanding this unique role of Peter is not to either defend or refute what church tradition has made of him. We spend a lot of time doing that. We spend a lot of ink defending against false teaching, so much so that sometimes we miss the teaching of Scripture. The key to understanding this role that Peter was given is to understand the meaning of the phrase, I will give to you the keys of the kingdom. And that's what I want to focus on here because I believe the passage that I read that admittedly we will not be spending a whole lot of time in because I think what we're seeing here is, is a, again, a progression wherein Peter is being illustrated as using those keys that were given to him by his Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he wasn't the only one with the keys, but he was, in, in the terms of, of the Bible and of the ancient Near East, he was the head steward of the house, if we can think of it that way. In fact, the very phrase, I will give to you the keys of the kingdom, harkens from Isaiah 22, where the Lord promises to give the keys to David's chief steward, the chief steward in the house of David at that time. And that he would basically bind and loose and anyone he said could come in, could come in. Anyone he said couldn't, wouldn't. Well, that's what Jesus is saying to Peter. There's two questions, I think, at least, with regard to the keys of the kingdom. First, what are the keys of the kingdom? 
And second, was, it the, was the authority contained in them passed down to the next generation? See, that is actually at the heart of the Roman Catholic doctrine of the papacy. Okay? Not so much uh, that, that Jesus gave Peter a unique position. I hope that we can all agree on that. Again, if you want to call him the first among equals, that's fine. I'm sure he would not have disagreed with you. But he was undoubtedly given a special position, and that shows up in the book of Acts. It shows up even in Paul's letters, as he refers to Cephas as one of the pillars of the church. The question is, was that authority, was that position intended to be passed down to the next generation, to Linus, to Antecletus, to Clement, and that's about as far as I go, all the way down to Francis in our own day. Is it, is it accurate to the scriptures to say that this role, this possession of the keys, was to become an integral, foundational, and essential part of the church? Or was it a unique instance with regard to the transition period from the Old Covenant to the New. Keys, the first question, what are the keys? Well, that should be fairly easy. What do keys do? They lock or they unlock. So they either let people in or they keep people out. That's pretty much what a key does. It's the same in a, in a key that unlocks a code. If you have the key, you understand the code. You understand what's being written. If you don't have the key, you don't have a clue. So you're either in the know or you're in the dark. So the key is metaphorical, the key is literal. But Jesus ties to the operation of the key, binding and loosing. And he says that whatever you bind in, on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now binding and loosing are, are really a different picture altogether, aren't they? A key locks or unlocks a door. Binding ties someone up. It, just, it takes away their freedom. Loosing sets them free. So, this is a big deal here. This is something we really need to, to, to understand. If Jesus had simply said, you know, I'm giving you authority over the church to decide who's a Christian, who's not a Christian, or who can come to communion and who doesn't come to communion, that would be one thing. But to say that whatever decision you make is valid in heaven, that's saying a lot. So we have to be care careful as Protestants what we say about it. What we do to explain this binding and loosing and this locking and unlocking. Realizing that if we, if we stick to what Jesus said, our decisions, if in fact we do possess the keys that were given to Peter, our decision is ratified in heaven. Well, that's a pretty good court to be backed up by. In fact, you might even say that that grants a degree of infallibility, does it not, to the church, that the church has never done well having. So we have to be careful when we think about these keys. The healing of Aeneas, the raising of Dorcas, these are examples of that authority to loose to free those who are in the bondage of sin manifested by sickness. That's something that we see in Jesus' ministry and then again in the apostles. Now, Dorcas did then, as Lazarus, eventually die. 
but to show that the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ carried with it the power over the effects of sin on earth, miracles were given, miracles of healing, because we were not made to get sick. We were not created to die. So sickness and death are manifestations of sin, and healings and resurrections are manifestation of that power in the gospel through Jesus Christ to loose people, to free people from the bondage of sin. And this is an example of Peter using those keys to loose, to free. We've also seen him lock the door to Simon Magus, a man who we're told believed and was baptized. And yet it was Peter who said to him, your heart is still in the bondage of iniquity. You were in the gall of sin. Click. And the church did not admit in their traditions Simon Magus. But I think we're heading, and unfortunately we, we will not have time in this session to get there, but we're heading to one of the most important passages with regard to Peter's ministry, and that is chapters 10 and 11 of Acts. His vision of the sheet filled with unclean animals, and then his his experience in the house of Cornelius, the Roman centurion. There are two views, two interpretations that are uh, predominant within professing Christianity regarding the keys of the kingdom. The first is the Roman Catholic view. Again, we read from, from their encyclopedia, Christ, by employing this expression, clearly designed to signify his intention to confer on St. Peter the supreme authority over his church. Now, this is how the Roman Catholics view it. It has to do with the authority and the hierarchy of the church. And in that you see an idea not of the church as a living body, but as an institution. And in that institution there must be authority, there must be a chain of command, and there must be someone at the head of it. And so the Roman Catholic teaches that by conferring the keys of the kingdom on Peter, Jesus designed that Peter should be that head of the church. The article goes on to say, the permanence of that office is essential to the being of the church. Now this is how we understand why the Roman Catholics teach that the authority of Peter was passed down from generation to generation because their idea of the church makes it necessary. There must be an authoritative head of the church and that man must have a direct spiritual link to the first head of the church, Peter. Now that's the view we don't agree with. As Protestants, we don't agree with the primacy of the Pope. We don't agree with the, the apostolic succession that Rome claims for its authority structure. However, in its favor, the Roman Catholic view at least grants full meaning to the terms Jesus uses. When the Roman Catholic Pope binds, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that that bondage is ratified in heaven. When the Roman Catholic Church looses, 
And this would be their process of beatification and canonization as they release people's souls from purgatory. They teach that that loosing is ratified in heaven. So in its favor, though it is utterly wrong, it at least deals with the text. It deals with the words that Jesus uses. The Protestant view, and especially the Reformed view, is given to us um, in a summary form in the answer to the Heidelberg Catechism, question number 83. The question is, what are the keys of the kingdom? The answer, the preaching of the Holy Gospel and Christian discipline, or excommunication out of the Christian church. By these two, the kingdom of heaven is open to believers and shut against unbelievers. This is a complete evasion of the words binding and loosing that are used in Matthew 16. One must first be in the church in order to be excommunicated. So by the Heidelberg Confession, the church has already exercised the keys of the kingdom to allow someone in, and in the Heidelberg Confession that would be through infant baptism. So we have already allowed the person in, and now we're going to put the person out. How is the first decision ratified in heaven if by the second decision we have to put the same person out? But the big problem is it confuses the church and the kingdom. And that's something we do in our minds without even thinking about it. We think church, kingdom, kingdom, church as if they're synonyms. They're not synonyms. These, are, these aren't the keys of the church, folks. Josh has those. Uh, he doesn't want you in. <laughs> He'll change the locks. I mean, it's not the keys of the church we're talking about. I'm being facetious, of course. That's just a building. You know, the church is more than just a building. But the church isn't the kingdom, and the kingdom isn't the church. These are the keys of the kingdom. And again, when Jesus says to Peter, whatever you bind will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose shall be loosed in heaven. There's, there's a there's a, a, an intimate connection between what's going on here and what's going on in heaven. And, and there's no controversy. There's, there's no conflict between the decisions. And that's a really high order of authority that's being talked about. And one that we should be very careful that we do not exercise flippantly. But how well has the church done over the years in exercising the use of the keys of the kingdom? Has the church ever erred? Has it ever locked out those who belonged in, even consigning them to persecution and martyrdom? Has it ever allowed in those who should never darken the door so that heresy and false teaching creeps into the church? Has the church leadership that you've experienced even over the years of your walk with the Lord, has it been on the whole gracious and compassionate? Or have you ever experienced or perhaps read about tyranny in the pulpit? Tyranny among the pastors. Tyranny in Protestant churches that would equal that that we claim Rome has cornered the market on. Really, if we look at our track record, and I mean all the way through the last 2,000 years, and various different denominations, including individual congregations, I think we'll all say, we don't handle the keys very well at all. That kind of authority 
when it is, when it is taken upon the leadership of a church has almost always led to persecution and oppression and tyranny. Lording it over the flock rather than shepherding the flock. I, I think personally that there is a, there's an a priori uh, justification for saying, if those keys are still available, I would rather not have them. That is a burden too heavy to bear. The responsibility of making decisions such as the Pope pretends to make, and as many pastors also pretend to make, is far beyond their skill sets. Far beyond the depth of their spirituality. Far beyond the measure of their suffering in which they have truly imitated Christ. And most men, if they were told in seminary, for example, that when you are ordained, you are given the keys of the kingdom, they should go screaming out the front door or jumping out a window. Because what you bind in, on earth will be bound in heaven, and what you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. But in the debate on both sides, Catholic and Protestant, it is assumed by both views, and really by all who have tried to interpret the keys, that they and the authority they represent have been passed on from generation to generation down to our own day. We read it in the Bible, and so we think that it must be perpetual, right? We think that it must apply to all generations. We're studying on Thursday night the transition or the relationship between the church and Israel. We're reading in the book of Acts the actual historical events by which the people of the Old Covenant would become the new Israel of the New Covenant. And during this time, there is an overlap between the covenants. And things that we read and things that we see were vital to that time, but not necessarily intended to be perpetual. I've mentioned this with regard to the book of Acts. We have to always ask the question, was this historical or is this normative? Was this something that we read the early church did, and this is why, or is this something that we're supposed to be doing as well? The answer is not always easy to come by, but it's vital that we ask that question. Now, if we look back on 2,000 years of history in which the almost universal perception has been that those keys and the authority they possess was intended to pass down, and we see oppression, persecution, and the killing of Christians by Christians, can't we at least pause, step back, and ask the question, is this what Jesus meant when he gave to Peter the keys of the kingdom? Did he intend for professing Christians to be burned at the stake? Did he intend for people to be exiled and starved because their religion didn't conform to that of the prince of their land? Is that what he intended for the use of the keys? I think not. Rome believes that the keys are, are operated by the bishops with the Pope as their head, the direct descendant of Peter. Reformed Protestants believe that the keys are exercised in the preaching of the gospel and through discipline. 
But what if the power of the keys was foundational only? You know, we don't read of any directive in Scripture that I know of by which the Lord states, Oh, by the way, Peter, after you, I want you to give the keys to Linus. And after him, to Antiochus. Okay? We don't even read it from Peter. We don't read of any situation, in the Scriptures at least, whereby the authority of the keys of the kingdom are handed off to the next generation. What we do see in the history of the church is that by the end of the first century, the frequency of signs and wonders and miracles and healings has already dropped off precipitously from the times of the apostles. And by the second century, prophecies and miracles are being disallowed in the church because the apostles were no longer here. So we see that the, the outward manifestation of this authority is going off the scene very quickly. And yet the church wants to hold on to the reality of the power of the keys. Much of Acts, the book of Acts, is transitional. It's the cusp of the covenants where the history of God's redemptive work did not as is taught in dispensationalism, come to an abrupt end of one era and the abrupt beginning of another. But rather, there's overlap. With the transition of the Old Covenant people of Israel into the New Covenant people of the church, there is overlap. With the transition of the New Covenant people of the church and the eternal citizenry of the kingdom, there is overlap. And it's in that overlap that requires our most earnest plea for divine wisdom as we read the Word. We want to have a clean break. Oh, Jesus died. Israel's done. Now we got the church. Oh, rapture. Church is gone. Now we're back to Israel. Nice and clean. We can put those on charts. Cusps don't go well on charts. They get confusing. And yet, that's life, folks. We don't all of a sudden become an adult. You know, wake up one morning and you're no longer a child. I guess when you get up and make your bed, you know, you're, that's it. You're an adult. No, it, it doesn't happen that way. We didn't wake up one morning and say, oh, I'm middle-aged. You know, it, it kind of came on us, didn't it? You know? <laughs> morning after morning. Devotionals. Um, that's the way life is. And God has mediated the truth of His revelation through the life of His people and we're dealing with a transitional phase. We're, we're coming up on, as I said earlier, a very critical point in the history of the church, in the history of, of God, of the Lord's people. And that is Peter's visit to Cornelius the Gentile. By the mouth of Peter and the other apostles with him, we see the kingdom being opened up to the Jews. Now, that's no surprise. The Messiah, the King, was promised to the Jews. So at Pentecost, we see the kingdom opened up to the Jews. They've been told the kingdom of God is upon you. And now they're, they're seeing the power of that glory through the, the sign of the Holy Spirit coming down upon these people who are to a man, to a woman, Jews. And, and so the church, which is 
we might say the, the gate to the kingdom now is opened up to the Jews. But then we see it open to the Samaritans. You know, it's Peter who confirms that. We see it opened up to a eunuch. Now, that was, that was just Philip. But eunuchs were, were forbidden to enter the assembly under the Old Covenant. And now the prophecy that the eunuchs and the foreigners will join themselves to God's people is being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And we're even going to see it opened up to the Gentiles. Folks, Paul will be the apostle to the Gentiles, but Peter is going to unlock the door. Read, read on and see how it comes out. Paul's ministry by God's ordination is going to be to the Gentiles. And yet for the Gentiles to come in as with the Samaritans, as with the eunuchs, to come into the kingdom as equal citizens with the Jews, it would be Peter who will unlock the door. It will be the word of Peter that his fellow apostles will agree with when he says, the Holy Spirit came on them like he did on us. How could I deny them baptism? And all the others would say, Amen, brother. God has let the Gentiles in. God has granted the same salvation to the Gentiles. Praise be to God. That's the key. That's the unlocking of the kingdom. That doesn't need to be done every generation. Because there are only a fixed number of groups of people on the earth. And within the, the Jewish redemptive system, in their understanding, once you've allowed the Jews in, well, of course, they've always been in, and then you allow the Samaritans in, the half-breeds, and now you've allowed the Gentiles in, unless they discover life on Mars, that's it. So the keys have been used. What about Peter? What was his view of himself? Well, given the chance to be papal... Peter himself has always shows a different spirit. That's, that's what, I think that's one of the things that most convinced me, because I was raised Catholic. But one of the things that most convinced me of the error of that teaching was reading about Peter himself and realizing this was the least papal of all popes that ever lived. And given the opportunity to be papal, given the opportunity to be authoritative, he says, therefore I exhort the elders among you as your pope, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, not as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us the example of Peter. We thank you for his weaknesses, his humanity. We thank you for his faithfulness and even his unfaithfulness by which you are again proven faithful. We thank you, Father, that in spite of the undeniable authority and uniqueness of office that you gave to him, yet for the most part he remained a humble shepherd of your sheep. He had learned through suffering 
to be of the mind of Christ, considering others as more important than himself. And so, Father, even though it was Paul who said it, we can say also of Peter, imitate him as he imitates Christ, as he imitates God. I pray, Father, that you would bless our understanding of your word and of your work, that we would understand those things that were done for a season and those things that abide forever, and that we would learn how to walk in the truth as it applies to us, and yet to praise you for those things that have happened in the past, those things that have allowed us into the kingdom, allowed us to enter before your presence through the veil by the blood of Jesus Christ. We praise you in all things, all glory and honor be unto you through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, please stand for the benediction, a brief benediction from Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen.